Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Deja Food, where we talk about the epigenetics of taste aversions. My name is Grace. I'm a senior at the University of Michigan, and I'm here with Nicole. Say hi, Nicole. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole. I'm also a senior at the University of Michigan as well. And to start off, we're going to do a little icebreaker to talk about um, our favorite foods so you get to know us a little better. So, Nicole, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is definitely anything that has to do with chocolate. I love sweets. I love dark chocolate. Anything like that. How about you? Yummy. I think my favorite is just like all breakfast foods. Is that wrong? I don't know. But like bacon, waffles, eggs. Ooh, I'd have to pass on the eggs. I actually got really sick off of eggs when I was a kid. And so now even just like the smell of them makes me sick to my stomach. Are you kidding? That's crazy. Interestingly enough, that actually goes along really well with what we're going to be talking about today. When you're growing up, there's like so many different experiences and things that shape your likes and dislikes long into the future. Um, And one of those big factors is food. So when you have a bad experience with a certain type of food, it actually changes your genes, the stuff that makes up who you are. Um, So whether it was like fish giving you food poisoning or maybe you just got sick with the flu after eating lasagna, those experiences stay with you for a really long time um, and affect how you feel about tastes and smells. Um, So this is just like one example of the way that our lives are influenced by our experiences through our genes. So there's a lot of information that your genes get from your parents. That's where you get all of that genetic stuff, DNA and all of that. However, not all of it is expressed at once. Um, There's just a lot going on in there. So DNA is packaged really tightly within your cells to conserve space. And so the DNA that you need to use all the time is open. And this is what is called epigenetics. It's the chemical changes that happen within our genes, which determine which genes are able to be used. Think of it like packing a suitcase. When you're packing for a trip, you wanna make sure all the items you need right away are easily accessible. Well, the stuff that you don't really need right now, or maybe ever if you're an overpacker like me, is at the bottom, secure. Perhaps maybe you packed rain boots for your trip to the Bahamas. You don't really need them right away. So it's best to just keep them at the bottom and filled with your socks. So open, available DNA is ready to be used, whereas tightly packed DNA won't be expressed. There are ways chemically to turn your DNA off and on in different parts, and that's what your epigenome does. If you're interested in learning more about the epigenome and all that good stuff, feel free to look at our first podcast on NeuroEpic called Introduction to Epigenetics. So when we're talking about learning and memory, it can get kind of complicated, but in order to break it down and talk in general terms, we can kind of split it up into three different processes. So first we start off with acquisition, and basically what this means is that we are learning the information which will eventually get stored as a memory. You can kind of think of this happening in the first 30 seconds or so of when you learn something. So like when you get a new phone number and you have to write it down. Next we have consolidation. So basically this is the process where we take that new information that we've learned and we try to turn it into a memory. So this process happens about 24 hours after we first learn something and this is going to get stored into our heads. Finally we have retrieval and this means that we have the memory already stored and now anytime we want to use it we have to bring it back out of our brain to the forefront. This would happen like when you have to recite that phone number again or when we're talking about your childhood phone number that you've had memorized forever. 
When we combine two different things from our environment, we can create memories that we call an associative memory. And this is where we have two specific things that we generally think of together. So when we're talking about taste, we often can form conditioned taste aversions. So conditioned taste aversions are a specific type of this associative memory. And this happens when we've had a food or a taste or a smell, something like that, and it actually gets paired with a feeling of sickness. So this happens most strongly when we've had nausea or we've thrown up or something that makes us really sick. And then we pair that feeling with that specific food. So like we said earlier, like getting food poisoning from fish, more than likely you're going to be stuck with that feeling for a while when you smell or you see that fish, your mom's making it in the kitchen again. Just not a great thing. The insula is a portion of our brain that is responsible for linking our emotions and our experiences, which is why it's so important when we look at taste aversions. So conditioned taste aversions really rely on the combination of information that comes from the, what the food was and the feeling that we had after eating it. So in current research, a lot of scientists are looking at this part of the brain to see how it impacts our taste aversions. If the insula can be damaged, it actually can erase our conditioned taste aversions which shows just how much of an impact it has on that. So a lot of people have wondered why we actually have these taste aversions. What's going on? Creating these strong memories is essential for animals from an evolutionary perspective, because it's important for survival. You have to know which things are going to potentially make us sick or even kill us. When we look evolutionarily, we actually notice that these food aversion mechanisms are almost identical in a ton of different species. So animals are forming associative memories about food really quickly and so that they make sure that if they have an experience with nausea or have a memory um, about something making them sick, it stays with them for a really long time and they know don't eat that food again. Many researchers think that organisms are actually set up to easily associate nausea with food because it's a way to recognize poisons. Generally, the things we can't digest are the ones that cause nausea. And so this is our body's way of making sure that we never try to eat something again that could potentially hurt us. There are actually two separate biological mechanisms that lead to food avoidance. Um, I think this is really interesting because it shows that evolutionarily, these are two separate things. Sometimes we learn not to like a food because it makes us sick, while other times we learn to associate it with a bad taste or something else that we just don't like. So our brain actually treats these two events completely differently, even though they have the same end result of not liking that food anymore. Uh, so it just depends on whether you got sick from it or you actually just don't like it. In order to test this in laboratory settings, Researchers often pair a bitter or salty tasting thing to induce nausea, such as lithium chloride. They just pair that with the consumption of a certain food or drink. Then by associative learning, the pairing of those two things becomes a long-term memory. So in order to study the epigenetics in conditioned taste aversions, researchers actually wanted to find out more specifically what is happening in the insula, and then what happens if we try to mess up these processes. So a common way that the environment of our genes actually decides what genes are on versus what genes are off is through processes called histone acetylation and histone deacetylation. So in this situation, we have histone acetylation, which helps us to turn on genes that we want, whereas histone deacetylation typically helps turn genes off that we don't currently need. So in this study that we were looking at, researchers chose to stop histone deacetylation from turning genes off in the insula in order to see how it would impact the animal's memories.
Their findings here showed that by stopping histone deacetylation, genes were actually able to stay on better in the insula and that the animals had stronger memory formations. They stopped this process both immediately while the, right after the animal learned something and then also seven hours after they've learned something. And in both cases, they found that these memories were able to be stronger. What this tells us about epigenetic mechanisms is that they actually have a lot of impact after learning and it doesn't happen just while we're learning something. It happens along the processes of turning those new things that we've learned into long-term memories. So in order to turn on those genes, there are actually chain reactions that allow your brain to combine the information and make those associations to create the taste aversions. To test the effects of this, some researchers studied the effects of these pathways on epigenetics in snails. Interesting species to study, I know. They're not really like us at all, but they found some really interesting stuff. So through a conditioned taste aversion, they were actually able to make snails dislike carrots. And let me tell you, this is something that's not so easy to do because snails actually love carrots. It's a delicacy. But by giving them, you know, lithium chloride, things that made them nauseous, it made the snails act defensively towards this carrot rather than just eating them up. Associating that food with something that's nauseating actually started a biological chain reaction that affects the epigenome, making the DNA that's used for learning available to the brain and those proteins then were able to be made. So when this chain reaction gets blocked though, they found that it actually stops the memory formation process. So these snails were still able to enjoy their carrots even after having negative experiences with them. The other thing that they found that I think is really interesting is that this pathway is actually only important when learning negative food associations. So they can't make the snail like something by having a good association. They can only make snails hate something they previously liked. This therefore implies that learning through negative experiences is fundamentally different in our brains than forming memories by other means and learning to associate things with good memories. So another way that epigenetics alters our chain reactions in the brain is actually through other chemicals that can be present. So one of these is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And this is a specific protein that actually is found in our brain pretty often. And it's been shown to help our nerves grow and stay healthy. This is really important anywhere that we need new brain tissue and we need to form new things in our brain. So because we know how important this protein can be, researchers thought that it would probably be pretty important for creating conditioned taste aversions in our brain. So theoretically, if we added more of this protein to the insula, we could probably make stronger memories. So in order to test this in the lab, researchers have forced taste aversions onto mice by adding a little bit of that lithium chloride to their food, which makes them really nauseous and then they remember that that food is what makes them sick. So in order to test this, they split the mice into two separate groups. So in one group, they're giving the mice just a little bit of this lithium chloride. So they have just a slight reaction and they feel a little bit sick. In another group, they're gonna create a really strong conditioned taste aversion. They feel really sick and they feel really strongly about that food. So then what they're gonna do is they added this brain-derived neurotrophic factor to the insula in the group with the weak taste aversion because they wanted to see if there was any way to make that taste aversion just as strong as the other group. So they actually found that they were able to make up the difference between these two groups. So what this tells us, which I thought was really interesting, is that you could theoretically create a food, food aversion memory in the brain of the animal just by adding extra proteins, as long as you do it at the right time and place.
So it's not necessarily just based on our environment and scientists can actually manipulate that for us. So one question we were interested in answering is, if you have a food aversion, are you stuck with it for the rest of your life? Or can it go away? Can you make it go away in some way? In recent years, epigenetic research has actually shown that memory acquisition and consolidation are not fixed, but um, a changing process that can be influenced by the environment of our genes. So due to the epigenetic basis of food aversions, they can be formed and rewritten quickly and easily in comparison to some other behaviors. Scientists have found substances that can actually stop long-term memories of food, food aversions from forming, but they can't generally reverse food aversions already, unless there's brain damage to the insula, of course. So while there have been chemicals that are associated with feeding behavior or other things that have been shown to stop memories from forming um, just by packing that DNA that's needed more tightly, we don't recommend it for getting rid of any food aversions that you have. It does a bunch of other things as well, and it probably would just stop them from forming rather than getting rid of them. So as we've already talked about, there are clear evolutionary benefits for animals to have these conditioned taste aversions. Animals in the wild need to obviously avoid poisonous foods and things that can make them sick. So it's really important that these memories stick even after just one exposure. So that way they don't test their boundaries and, you know, try these foods in the, in the future. But with that being said, they're often pretty annoying for humans. We're stuck with foods that we may have once liked and now we can't eat anymore because they just fill us with disgust. So that's why it's really interesting to study this and see if there's any way that we can alter these types of associations. So as we talked about throughout the, this podcast, there are a lot of epigenetic mechanisms that can influence the formation and the maintenance of these memories. And so it's really interesting to study in order for us to understand why some associations are made and why those associations are made so strongly, while others aren't and some don't last. So when, when scientists learn about all these different mechanisms that alter our epigenetics, they're able to actually create, over-exaggerate, and inhibit all of these associations artificially in a research lab, even after we've already acquired these memories. So what I'm hearing is you're not going to like eggs anytime soon. Probably not. But at least I know that if it had been from an allergic reaction, it would have been evolutionarily helpful and my body would have been looking out for me. Unfortunately, I was just a kid with the stomach flu, and that's an association that I'll just have to live with from now on. Thanks for listening. Hope you learned something about taste aversions and memory. Now you'll know what happens next time you get deja food.